I'm Hannah Critchlow, and in this special Naked Neuroscience series, I'm in Milan, busy stripping down breaking hot neuroscience research at the Federation of European Neurosciences 2014 Forum. In the last episode, we uncovered the science of sleep. Ever been up all night partying and then crashed out completely the next day? That's your brain sleep bank getting out of the red to make up your lost sleep credit. We discovered the sleep brain bank in fruit flies. Except we don't keep them awake all night partying. It's more sort of a zero dark 30 if you've seen that movie about torture in Iraq. It's, it's more that approach, for sleep deprivation like uh, the Secret Service would do. Poor fruit flies, and they didn't even get the joy of a party to justify their sleep deprivation. And in the news, how long could you be left alone with your thoughts? Ten seconds? A minute, maybe. It turns out that most people would rather press a button to give themselves an electric shock than have 15 minutes of solitary thinking time. Especially men, they seem to want to shock themselves out of boredom, so to speak. We did have one man who pressed the button 190 times, much to our surprise. Revealing the human desire to experience and engage, sometimes repeatedly, with stimuli from the outside world. In this episode, how a revolution in technology is bringing an unprecedented flood of information about the brain. And with this, concerns over use, including students buying memory-boosting chemicals or smart drugs over the internet, hoping for this. Then a small 10% improvement in a memory score could lead to a higher A-level grade or degree class. And how a £100 helmet sending an electric stimulus through your scalp to your brain has been claimed to help with, well, almost anything. Mood, decision-making, morality, anxiety, depression, mathematical learning, language, memory, autism, ADHD, Parkinson's disease, pain. Now, either this is magic <laughs> or we're not putting tough enough filters on the messages that we're giving out. Alongside brain scans to keep people in or out of jail, and the military latching into the mind for warfare. So who's responsible for how these neuroscience findings are being employed? Is it the government, misrepresentation by the press, or...? I'll put it out there, for the first time in my experience, I think we're in an area where the hype is led by scientists. As we develop new ways to peer into the brain, a flood of data is coming out. A quick search for the keyword brain on PubMed, the scientific online results library, reveals that there's been an explosion in brain-based publications. The number of papers is doubling every 20 years. Currently, a whopping 5,000 new results are out each month on the topic. The press and marketing teams are leaping at the findings, with breaking headlines suggesting that you could swallow computer code and become a walking encyclopedia, to buying neurodrinks that help you fall asleep, wake up, or fall in love. I spoke with Barbara Sahakian, Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroethics at Cambridge University, and Vince Walsh, Professor of Human Brain Research at University College London, for their thoughts. Well, there's not a bigger problem than uh, understanding our brains and health and disease. It's terrific that we have this explosion 
of these uh, new techniques that we can use in neuroscience, but we have to be aware of their effects on society and the implication, ethical implications of using these. My own work has to do with cognitive enhancing drugs, and now we have an increasing lifestyle use of these drugs by healthy people. And we have to ask, how's that going to change our society? And is this a good thing, or is it you know, something we should be really concerned about? So it's very important that we actually discuss the way it will change our society and what the implications are for individuals. And you're mentioning smart drugs or cognitive enhancers. So something like one in ten students at Cambridge University, for example, are reporting that they get these drugs over the internet in order to try and help boost their grades. And we're seeing you know, increasing numbers of students that are even younger, they may be 14, 15, that may be feeling the pressure of exams and are taking these pills to try and make them smarter. Is there any scientific basis to these drugs? And are there any possible side effects for these children in the future? Well, that's the important thing because we don't know what will happen with the long-term use of these drugs in healthy people and that's what I'm very concerned about and I'm very concerned about internet buying because you don't know what you're buying. It's a very dangerous way to get these prescription-only drugs. But drugs, these smart drugs such as modafinil and also methylphenidate, which is also known as Ritalin, are being quite commonly used, as you say. And I've been studying also why are they being used. And obviously they're being used, as you mentioned, to get the competitive edge against other students where you want to get an improvement in your exam score. So, for instance, the Academy of Medical Sciences in a 2008 report pointed out that even a small 10% improvement in a memory score could lead to a higher A-level grade or degree class. And they're also using them to counteract jet lag and to stay awake and alert. But the other interesting reason that we found out recently that they're using them for is because they enhance a motivation. So for things that you were putting off and didn't want to do, say studying for your exams or writing a long essay paper, it makes doing that more interesting, more pleasurable. Well, this all sounds very positive. I mean, I'm tempted to, to get some now. Is there any reason that I shouldn't? Well, there are other ways we can boost our brain power. We know that exercise is a very good way to boost our brain power, and obviously it's very good for your physique as well. So that will you know, improve your mood, it will improve your cognition, and improve uh, your physique. So that's a brilliant thing to do. And we know that um, exercise can actually increase neurogenesis, you know, new cells in the hippocampus, a very important area of the brain for memory. So that's one thing we could do. And also new learning. New learning increases neurogenesis. So there's many other ways that we can actually boost our cognition. And really, we should be working to do this rather than just taking pills. And I think we also, going right back to what we're in universities for, getting good exam results isn't what the university or a school education is for. It's about finding out what you love doing and developing your skills at that. And I'm right with Barbara on looking at the, I wouldn't call them lower level, but lifestyle ways. Is exercise a better way of improving your memory and overall health? Is taking control of your sleep regime a better way of improving your memory? and learning rather than looking for these short quick fixes which have or may have hitherto unknown side effects. We really just don't know. And as well as the chemical ways that you can tweak your brain and your behaviour and boost your cognition, there's also other ways that you can stimulate yourself, which I believe you're concerned about, Vince. Yeah, there's a, a similar problem in the brain stimulation world and I think what we've got is a problem of big data, the pace of 
advances in the neurosciences and the pace of the sheer numbers, the volumes of papers, means that it's not a question of what we can measure, it's a question of what we need to pay attention to amongst what we measure, what matters of what we're measuring. And there's a lot of measuring and a lot of attempts to manipulate the brain which might not really be fundamental, they're just doable. Uh, and I think that that distance between laboratory science and everyday science, because everybody can access everything now, has really shrunk to a point where we haven't just got a scientific problem anymore. We've got a data management problem, we've got a philosophical problem, and we've got a, a problem uh, that requires scientists to think about how we address the public when we talk about our, our results. So. In the brain stimulation field, there are two forms of brain stimulation I'm most concerned with, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a much more established uh, area that's calmed down over the past few years, and we're now consolidating on the things that it really can help, things like depression. But in another area of direct current stimulation, there are lots of claims of uh, direct current stimulation helping mood, decision-making, morality, anxiety, um, depression, mathematical learning, language, memory, autism, ADHD, Parkinson's disease, pain. Now either this is magic <laughs> or we're not putting um, uh, tough enough filters on the messages that we're giving out. And I think there's a scientific responsibility here that's, that's more than just having to report our data as we see it. We have to think about how this is going to be perceived by the public. And so I think we have a philosophical problem as, as well as a, a problem of the sheer volume, dealing with the volume of stuff that we're putting out, which we've never actually had before. And I think if we take a good look at ourselves in the mirror, we have to say that we've been blindsided by, by the speed of our own progress, if it's progress. So the brain uses electricity in order to communicate and to give our perception of the world around us, and you can actually tweak people's behaviour using changes in electricity. And scientists have been looking at how magnets and changes in electricity can help particular patient groups. And now students are, for example, buying helmets over the internet for about £100, um, putting them on their head, and then changing the electrical currents yeah. in their brains yeah thinking that that's going to increase their grades, for example, or, or help them in a particular way of thinking or behaving. Um, is there any scientific basis to that, or any worries that we should be aware of? A, a big no and a tiny yes. This is the problem of the signal-to-noise ratio when there's so much data out there. If people make claims about uh, what direct current stimulation can do, then members of the public will follow up on, on those claims. But if we take a really close look at how big those claims are, just two examples, both from recent papers, they're a random slice of what's been making me angry in the past few weeks. One was a single case study of direct current stimulation showing that direct current stimulation could relieve anxiety. Now, that's actually worthless. It's not in the mold of classic neuropsychological case studies. It's a, a pilot study on one subject that should have been followed up with a large group and a control group and control stimulations, but it's, it's there in the literature for anybody who wants to Google it, is DC stimulation good for anxiety? And it's that kind of irresponsibility that I think we have to watch out for. A second example, a study to assess the tolerance of direct current stimulation in children. I think these were about 10 to 12 years old and the measure of tolerance was whether the parents at home observed that the children tolerated the daily stimulation well enough. 
This is, I'm not ashamed to say it, we're very nice to each other in, in science, we're very gentlemanly and we hide behind peer review, but this is, this is unacceptable. We really don't know what these currents do to the brain. I'll give you one, one example. If these things might be doing something to the brain and if the very small millisecond effects that we observe in the laboratory can be translated into the real world, then we really have to be much more careful than we are being in having parents assess whether children are okay or having single care studies. But let's take the second case. Is it possible that these things are not doing anything to the brain? I'll give you one example. Everything that we know about these techniques is based on how it affects a certain part of the brain called the motor cortex because we can measure how it makes the hand twitch. Now I can make your hand twitch and I can change its sensitivity, the part of the brain that controls it, for up to 90 minutes. And that makes a very nice paper. I can control brain excitability for 90 minutes. That's as long as you sit very still throughout my experiment for 90 minutes. If you shake your hand, like you're shaking out um, a pain for 10 seconds, all those effects of brain stimulation go away. So the probability of a 30 millisecond increase in your reaction time under laboratory conditions where you've been caffeine deprived, you've had a good night's sleep, you're only allowed to do it for an hour. The probability of that translating to a 17 year old who's on his fourth can of Red Bull at four o'clock in the morning uh, and is doing it because he really wants to win has got to be close to zero. I don't know where to punch the hardest, whether it's, whether it's to explain that these forms of brain stimulation are really unlikely to be doing anything or if they are doing anything, then we really ought to be holding back and being a lot more responsible than we are. I'd like to go back to an earlier point that Vince made because I do think it's very important and that's that when we, we think about cognitive enhancement, we usually think about enhancing cold cognitive tasks, the sort of planning, problem solving, you know, the sorts of memory, that sort of thing. But maybe we should think about it more generally when we're thinking about uh, neuroscience and society and we're thinking about neuroethics. Don't we want people to be, you know, more responsible people and to give back to society? So that we do need to also look at um, some of these studies where we have uh, cognitive enhancing drugs and how they might affect social cognition and behavior towards each other. And there's very few studies in that area. There are some, but not very many. And again, going back to the fact that there are other ways to improve oneself other than through drugs is another point. So I think, you know, really we should be thinking more about what's our vision of society for the future and how do we want to obtain that and enhance ourselves in that way. And I suppose also another point is that although we're getting more information about how the brain works and how our behavior is linked to the brain, we're not quite there really understanding the fine level of tuning there. And an example is oxytocin, which is kind of the cuddle hormone, which is being given intranasally as a spray, shoved up couples' noses whilst they're having a relationship therapy in order to try and make them bond and become closer and to try and help their relationship survive. But one side effect that's been seen of oxytocin recently is that you will actually, you'll be more selfish in your group and actually almost more racist or kind of you will won't want to interact with 
other groups within society. So there's some, you know, very worrying side effects. And we're using this neuroscience, this very small amount of neuroscience knowledge at the moment in society. So what's the answer then? Should we be stricter with peer reviewing? Should we not talk or engage with the public with some of the findings or the preliminary findings of neuroscience? Or should we somehow monitor how these findings are being applied in the real world and promoted? Is it Whose, whose fault is this and how do we solve it? So, first of all, those couples deserve each other if they're going to go for that kind of thing. <laughs> Choosing hormones is a, a really good example of, of how uh, a headline message gets out and the same is true for, uh, for testosterone as, as, as well. It's, it's not a, a, a simple story that it makes you more competitive or, or brutal or any of those things. There are many nuanced effects of, of all the hormones. There are many nuanced effects of the drugs that we've been talking about. There are many nuanced effects of the of the forms of brain stimulation. So I think we're in a very strange uh, phase where I might be wrong, but I'll put it out there. For the first time in my experience, I think we're in an area where the hype is led by scientists. And that might be because we've been overtaken by the, the amount of data that we've got and we don't know what to do with it ourselves. We're, we're just people. It might be because of the career structure in science now. I, I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't like to be starting out back where I was 20 years ago. Now in the current climate, it's just a much tougher world in terms of making a career. So the pressures on the scientists are, are much greater. Of course, we've got to communicate science. I, I don't think science is, is completed. Your work as a scientist is completed until you've actually communicated the science to the people who, who've paid for it, the taxpayer. But the challenge is how to give a nuanced message. And it's not just going to be one-way traffic. It's going to be a philosophical mindset shift that we, we need to think about, thinking about those questions. What is education for? Is it just about getting better marks? Do we just want to do things faster? Do we just want to do, do things quicker? Or do we want to engage with things and think of improving in something as part of a personal journey and changing the way that we think about doing things? And there should be no embarrassment about scientists addressing those questions because we're at a stage now, especially in cognitive neurosciences, where our data is not in a, a moral vacuum and we, we have to deal with that. Barbara. Pick up both on your point, Hannah, and also Vince's point, because I think they're very important. And the initial studies with things like oxytocin and drugs like the SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you know, like Prozac type drugs, you know, they got these effects on sort of social behavior, social interaction. But uh, I think what's happened since then is they're being kind of refined, and it now seems that it's very context-dependent. The sort of very simple story that people were telling initially doesn't seem to hold. And then that sort of brings in, you know, some of Vince's comments, and I think really the answer is replication. Replication by your own group and replication by other scientific groups. And so obviously the studies have to be of good quality, but also they have to be replicated. And uh, hopefully we'll go a bit further. But I, I also think it's very exciting times because we do have this, you know, explosion of different techniques. And the public are very interested in the brain and they're very interested in improving themselves and enhancing themselves. And I think in general, this is a good thing. You know, we want to expand ourselves as, as people and develop in better ways, but maybe not just cognitively, maybe also socially and in other regards, because we might end up with a better world and less wars and things like that. So, and there are these other techniques that we can use besides drugs. And what about the applications of neuroscience in the military, for example? 
Well, of course, the military has been using um, stimulant drugs for some time, the amphetamines and Ritalin. There may be certain groups of the population where you would want them to use drugs to keep themselves safe and perhaps their colleagues, and the military may be uh, one of these groups. I also did a study with Lord Aradazi at Imperial College where he was looking at doctors who were sleep-deprived because he was concerned about surgeons taking excessive caffeine in the form of coffee to stay awake and alert at night while doing quite lengthy operations and he was worried about the tremor as a side effect and so he was wondering whether there was a sort of safer more effective cognitive enhancing drug to keep doctors awake and alert during lengthy operations so we did look at the effects of modafinil and we found that they indeed showed better cognitive flexibility so that they would be better at problem solving for instance and that they also showed less impulsive behavior so it did seem that in that group there were these definite improvements so one can think that there may be specific circumstances of or specific populations where these drugs could be definitely beneficial use. And as you said earlier, Barbara, obviously repetition with these studies is key before the NHS starts doling out these uh, cognitive enhancers to all of their doctors to ensure that they don't get the shakes and also have very little attention during uh, long surgery. Well, also, um, there are other ways. I mean, now we're doing a lot with cognitive training as well for neuropsychiatric patients to boost their cognitive function, and, and that can be very beneficial. And again, combining that with new technology, for instance, in the form of games, could be a very exciting way to go. So there, it isn't just drugs. There are other ways that we can enhance cognitive function. Um, what about the applications of neuroscience for sports enhancement? You were mentioning earlier, Vince, that you can actually stimulate muscles in your your hand by stimulating in an area of the brain called the motor cortex by electrically activating it. So could athletes just exercise their muscles by just activating particular areas of their brain? I think the long answer to that is, is no. I think when people make suggestions of using things like brain stimulation for athletes or for soldiers or anybody at a high performance end, like a, a musician for example, what they're betraying is a lack of knowledge about just what it is these people do at the level of excellence that they do it and how far away it is from the from the laboratory that we work in and there's a deep sense in which brain science is often going to be behind what these people do rather than able to manipulate it because what we're asking our best athletes to do is to do something faster higher longer more skillfully than anybody's ever done it before in history and they have to go to deep dark places within themselves and, and train extraordinarily hard both body and mind to achieve these things and I think it's almost disrespectful of people to even when my friends publish the papers suggesting this uh, that we might ha have a role of brain stimulation in enhancing sports performance. If there's one area of sport where brain stimulation might have a role it's uh, measuring let's say cortical integrity in, uh, in cases of concussion uh, because it's a test that can't be faked for example we could look at the, uh, the speed of uh, cortical motor conduction time in athletes and track that over the season but as an enhancement tool Philosophically, it's just wrong. That's not what sport is about. But scientifically, I, I think it's a non-starter as well. Um, what about the potential applications for neuroscience in the legal setting? Let me give you an example that I overuse. If we think about this table that we're sat at now, it's, it's, it's made of wood, but actually it's mostly empty space because of the spacing of the, of the particles in the, in the matter. And that's true, and it's interesting, and it's poetic, and it's of absolutely no use whatsoever to a carpenter. 
what we're doing in neuroscience is we're giving that atomistic description of the brain and cognition but in everyday life we're in the position of the carpenter and I think sometimes we get overexcited about making that leap between the atomistic structure of things that we've got and the practical uh, applications. I think law is a good example of, of, of that so in the US at the moment evidence from brain scans might be used when people are considering the sentencing of, of someone found guilty of a crime and recently there has been a case I believe in which that led to contributing to somebody not being given the death sentence but that should worry us because that means in principle the things that we say in neuroscientific journals uh, and the way that we communicate to people and we could be called upon could contribute to somebody being given the death sentence. So it's, it's not a game anymore. There are deep issues and, I, and even if you're not ever going to be called upon to contribute to that type of, of debate, I think it's worth thinking that the flavour of the debate that we have with the general public and the way that we present our science has an impact on, on how that will be seen, even by judges and juries. I think these questions of neuroscience and society are just so important. I mean, they're now being looked at very carefully by the European Human Brain Project. But also, uh, President Obama has been very interested in how neuroscience is going to affect society. And recently, within the International Neuroethics Society, we commented on the ethical considerations of neuroscience research and the application of neuroscience research findings for the study of bioethical issues. So they are very concerned about how neuroscience will be affecting society and how we'll be using it in the future. Thanks to Barbara Saharkian, Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroethics at Cambridge University, and Vince Walsh, Professor of Human Brain Research at University College London. Next, it's been decades of research bringing together the fields of brain and the immune system. This month, the Phase 1 clinical trial results are in from the world's first ever human trial on a vaccine for Parkinson's disease, developed by Austrian company Aphoris AG. This phase one trial was looking at just a handful of patients to check the vaccine wasn't toxic for them, and also to get some idea of if the vaccine might actually work. I firstly spoke with Professor Akim Schneeberger from Aphoris AG on the impact of Parkinson's. It bears the name of James Parkinson, an English physician who first described the disease about 200 years ago. Its prevalence is rising as the world's population ages. Currently, about 5 million people worldwide are affected. It's a condition in which part of the brain becomes progressively damaged over many years. This eventually gives rise to the physical symptoms, including tremors or involuntary shaking, slow movement and stiff muscles. On top of these so-called motor symptoms, Parkinson's affects patients in other ways, as Akim explains. The most common disabling non-motor feature is dementia. Other non-motor features include depression, dysfunction and sleep disturbance. It's thought that the damage to the brain cells that produce the chemical dopamine causes the majority of these symptoms. The treatments currently available increase dopamine levels in the brains of patients to try and mask this. Back to Akim on a new method for treatment. Increasing evidence points to a causal role of misfolded alpha-synuclein in the development and progression of Parkinson's disease. 
We now know that this misfolded protein, alpha-synuclein, is toxic to brain cells and disrupts dopamine production. Enter the Michael J. Fox Foundation, set up to fund finding a way to properly treat and prevent Parkinson's after the Back to the Future actor was affected by the disease. They've been working with Aphoris, as Dr. Todd Shearer, CEO of the foundation, explains. And one of our most promising drug targets towards that goal is alpha-synuclein the sticky protein that clumps in the brains of people with Parkinson's. We've provided about $2 million of funding, first for their preclinical work, and then for the phase one trial of their alpha-synuclein vaccine approach. So, Aphoris have developed a vaccine to stop toxic alpha-synuclein accumulating in animal models of Parkinson's. And this week, they announced the results of the phase one trial testing the compound on 24 patients. And it does appear to be safe in humans. But how does it work? Over to Dr. Walter Schmidt, CEO and co-founder of Aphoris AG. And the vaccine is teaching or educating uh, the immune system to generate antibodies which target this alpha-syn molecule and help patients thereby against Parkinson's disease. So by stimulating the body's immune system to produce antibodies that bind to and clear clumps of the protein alpha-synuclein. Back to Todd on the next steps for the study. The phase one study showed that the vaccine was safe and tolerable. Next, we will have to see if it actually provides significant benefit for patients. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in this episode. Thanks to all those in the programme, Barbara Sahakian, Vince Walsh, Akim Schneeberger, Todd Shearer, Walter Schmidt. This is a special Naked Neuroscience episode reporting from the Federation of European Neurosciences Forum in Milan. In the next episode, we'll be reporting closer to home from a Cambridge meeting hosted by the British Association of Psychopharmacology. We'll be finding out, does smoking dope decrease your potential for pleasure? The stereotypical stoner is often portrayed as an unmotivated, apathetic armchair philosopher. Now, new research reveals the biological underpinnings with chronic marijuana use rewiring the brain, making it less sensitive to the motivation and reward chemical dopamine. And when people smoke lots and lots of cannabis over time, the dopamine system can become used to being stimulated, and so it tries to adapt. How the simple act of dieting can rewire your brain's happy chemical, serotonin, to make you more compulsive and increase your susceptibility to develop an eating disorder. And without meaning to, if you lower brain serotonin levels through dieting, that can lead to lower mood and more compulsive behaviour. So the dieting really gets a grip on you and it's very hard to stop. And depression in teenagers. Estimates vary, but probably around sort of five to six percent of adolescents have moderate to severe depression. The shocking stats and what we can do to help lift their mood. See you next month to open our minds. My name's Hannah Critchlow and this is a special Naked Neuroscience episode from the Federation of European Neurosciences 2014 Forum. <laughs>